All right, welcome back to the show. Before we get to this week's interview with Google's Heather Adkins, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, enterprise device and firmware security specialists at Eclipsium. Eclipsium ships an enterprise device platform that provides visibility and mitigation for malicious activity all the way down to the firmware and hardware level. Think of it as one platform to discover, inventory, assess risk, patch, and detect compromises and supply chain breaches across your entire fleet of devices. Check them out and request a demo at eclipsium.com, E-C-L-Y-P-S-I-U-M.com. Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Heather Atkins. Heather is a 19-year Google veteran, founding member of Google security team. Uh, you're Senior Director of Information Security at Google. Uh, can you just spend a minute giving me a sense of what your, type, what your, what your primary role and responsibilities are there? Yeah, it's really complicated, Ryan, but thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Really excited to be here. Um, so I have, uh, you know, been at Google for a very long time and I've played just about every security role that you can possibly imagine, but have settled quite nicely into this space of big picture thinking and balance that with day-to-day actually keeping the hackers out. So I have um, a, a series of teams who work on detection response and that's that's kind of where my my love in the security space is. So I'm really happy I get to stay a little bit deep down, right. but at the same time also, you know, thinking about big picture, the strategy, how we educate people, um, how we bring awareness and um, how is it write- focused on, is it focused on securing Google's corporate assets or everything across the board? Is it privacy for customers, everything across the board? So we are looking, you know, primarily at how we keep Google inside safe. And there are lots of really talented people who look at how do we make the product secure? Um, how do we keep abuse from happening on the platform? Um, I, I, these are big topics, so I've right, specialized right, right. a little bit. Yeah, so it's it's hard to do everything all at once. But yeah. Right. Being at Google for 20 years kind of puts you into the place where that would be 2000, the year 2000, when security looked entirely different. I mean, we, it's, it's a whole different world, right? You were, Google was a search engine with a cool name and a wonky logo. Yeah. Now you've scaled this thing beyond imagination. Is there, when you look back at where computing was, not even 2000, let's say fast forward to say 2005 in the XP service pack two days to where it is today, right? Have you seen a sense of progress? Have you seen the type of progress you expected? And I want to kind of juxtapose this against what we're witnessing today, which is ODAs everywhere, supply chain attacks, exchange ODAs, and nation state attacks everywhere. It just feels like we've done so much over the years to build all these resilient systems and write books about things, but things are just as bad. Yeah. I think it's very tempting to feel that way, Ryan. Um, It's not tempting. Sometimes it's like, is it a reality check or are we... Are we amplifying and overblowing small things? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think the example actually that I give is uh, if you read Cliff Stoll's uh, The Cuckoo's Egg, mm-hmm. and he wrote the book. He also wrote an article in uh, for ACM, and it almost is kind of the first postmortem of a security incident that I've ever read. And when I read that today and I read about some of these um, kind of cryptocurrency compromises and cloud instances, it's all the same stuff. It's like the same postmortem over and over again. Um, so I think it is really uh, tempting to think of it in that way. But I, I do think we've made significant progress. Let's just take a look at two-factor authentication um, as an example. When 
I started in the industry, the the kind of standard was, you know, like a one-time token. And even then, you know, we barely had hardware tokens and people hated to use them because, you know, they rotated the number every X number of seconds you had to wait. Right. And it was the usability of it was really terrible. And now we have security keys um, on your phone. You have facial recognition and fingerprint readers. The usability of these things have made them more adoptable. And I think that, you know, especially in the last 10 years, we've seen some evolutions in that space that are that are going to be drastically different for consumers, for billions of people. I think also, uh, while we are seeing the same kinds of compromises, people not setting root passwords, not patching their systems, um, for the most part, I think we have all of the things in place we need to do to make this better. Like if you are a new company starting up, you can be a cloud native company. That is, you run your operation in cloud by default. You don't have this on-prem stuff to take care of. You don't have to worry about exchange. Use one of the big mail providers. You have choices that didn't exist you know, 20 years ago. And I think if you're making the right choices technology-wise, then you're in a much better situation. I think if you're making bad choices for yourself and you're, you know, then obviously, you know, that that's true of anything in life that you're, that you're going to face problems. So I think it's better. Um, I, I am dismayed that we're not further along that, you know, we are still talking about passwords and what makes a good password and a complex one. But I'm encouraged that like my bank just turns on two factor authentication or as we are now in Gmail, you know, by default to uh, two factor authentication for people. People There's still too much is. friction around the implementation for consumers too. You guys do it differently. Yahoo will do it differently. Every bank will do their two-factor authentication flow differently. And then it just, it's a burden on consumers to even understand what it is and what a key yeah. is. I try to set it up for my mom, my parents, for instance. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And can you imagine if someone doesn't even have someone like me to help them? So, yeah. I mean, we, we still have a long, long way to go to get these things, to yeah. get these friction points removed, right? I, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, we as solutions providers understand that. I think what you're seeing is the phase of technology where there's a lot of diversity of solutions. There are experiments, so to speak. You sort of look at um, how cars existed in kind of the 20s. There, there was no single ignition system. Some of them had cranks. Right, uh, right. Some of them had different kinds of mechanisms. And then eventually the solution space converged on what worked best for consumers. And now we all push a button to turn on car, right? So... Um, we'll see the same thing with two-factor authentication solutions and others over time once we figure out what the right things, like what the best path right. is for users. Yeah, You have, uh, are, while we're on the same topic, are you still surprised that in 2021 enterprises are still standardized on the use of VPNs? I am. Is that one of the things you expected would have been dead by now? I am not surprised, but I am encouraged by what we've seen over the past year. I think with everyone who, you know, sits you think the pandemic is really helping to kill yeah, the VPN. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, once you take a large workforce and you have them working from home, you start to see the fragility on productivity um, that these sort of heavyweight solutions that actually don't provide any real security. Um, At all. Yeah. It, it introduces more risk and, and expands your attack surface more than... Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's great for transport security. So, you know, man in the middle sniffing of traffic. But I think that um, extending the corporate network into thousands of people's houses is probably not the wisest of solutions. And there are replacements. 
there are, there are easy plug and play replacements as well right and 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 this is something a conversation i had with andy ellis coming out of the aurora 2009 attacks which you mm-hmm. you were involved with some of yeah. that response as well you've written about it yeah uh is akamai's move to zero trust driven by that incident yeah and how but for a lot of, I, I, I talked to a lot of these CISOs in these traditional organizations that are trying to manage this digital transformation, right? Mm-hmm. And they say implementing zero trust, like backporting zero trust is incredibly difficult. Is that a fair, is that a fair thing? Uh, I think that kind of backporting it? Yeah, I think it's a fair thing. If you're working in a traditional uh, company, maybe it's been around for 10 plus years, um, you're going to have a long journey. I, I think if you're a new company, you're just setting up for the first time, you're going to be able to get it by default. But these IT transformations take take time. It took Google time. Um, uh, sort of, it's it's fun that you mentioned Andy because we sort of walked the zero trust path uh, together. Together, uh, post two thousand nine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Post Aurora, um, and you know, it took Google ten years. I mean, we were inventing a lot of stuff at the beginning that didn't exist yet. That stuff now exists, so you know, companies don't have to to go through that. But if you are, for example, in the process of moving your on-prem applications into cloud, that will take some time. And that might be a prerequisite to some of the um, kind of proxy-based beyond corp zero trust solutions. But you're going to need to make those transitions anyway to stay competitive in your field. Um, I think a lot, of, I'm excited about the transformations because we can get a security uplift at the same time. But the reality is that, you know, banking, health, you know, oil pipelines, all of these folks are, are doing an IT transformation because it's what their business needs, right? And so they're going to do it anyway. You might as well get the security uplift at the same time. It might be a long journey, but if your company is going to be around for 50 or 100 years, right, you got to make that investment at some point. That's where I, I, I made some notes after reading the book and spending so much time in the book. The whole premise of the book is like, Set up your security and these, uh, and, and, and these principles as a foundational level at the very beginning and play the long game and understand that you'll have to iterate and, you know, mix and match things down the road. But the whole premise of the book on your RSA talk was start at the very beginning. What if it's too, is it ever too late to go back to the beginning? It's never you know what I mean? It, it, it connects right back with this conversation. Like, how do I, how do I, how do I get my mind wrapped around, okay, Here's the beginning. I'm setting down fundamentals. When my my network and my infrastructure looks like duct tape and bubble wrap and yep. pieces of code everywhere, right? How do I even wrap my head around that at scale? Yeah, I think the the actually the foundation is culture, not necessarily technology. If there is a culture for transformation, um, we we define that. It. Define that because culture yeah. is a word that's loosely used a lot. Yeah. So I mean, um, if your organization wants to make the investment and understands it's long-term and understands that it's going to need to make tough decisions. And this is usually a, you know, a leadership question of sorts, right? That's the foundation because if you, you know, yes, you're going to need to spend money. Yes. You're going to have to have conversations with your staff about, no, um, you can't just, you know, log in by the VPN with a password anymore. You need one of our computers, we need to verify it. We, you need a security key, right? There's there's conversations with the staff and that has to be part of this journey. So that's actually the foundation. And I would say to people, if your company doesn't have that, it will never have an appetite for a 10-year transformation, a five-year transformation. So it starts um, at the very top, starts, starts at, at the, the very, very top, almost at the board level, right? The yeah. kind of commitment to Let's setting change. this up as a foundational yeah. thing. Right? Yeah, especially if you are in uh, a regulated industry, you're going to have to have an appetite for a little bit of risk and a little bit of change 
these tend to be risk averse areas because you're sort of navigating complicated stakeholders in your ecosystem. Are these conversations getting easier for folks like you with your leaders? Is it getting easier because of the headlines? Is it getting easier because of business impact? Like look at Colonial Pipeline. I mean, yeah. it's it, the business impact from a ransomware in, in infection. Now it's just not the ransomware payment anymore and the cleanup. It's like a, it's the consequences are, yeah. are those conversations getting easier? Is it easier to get resources today than it was, say, three years ago? Well, at Google, I've never had any trouble with that. But from well, my conversation, we'll get into the security tax yeah. and the fact that there's a poverty line between yeah, the yeah. Googles and the have-nots. Right? Yeah. But, but I think, um, generally speaking, my peers in the industry do do seem to be thinking it's better. Um, again, this is, you know, company culture. Are, are we the kind of company that responds to headlines by, you know, just saying, don't ever let this happen? Or are we the kind of company that says, oh, we need to transform to be better here. I I think this ties in really closely to, a, um, you know, the executive order that came out um, very recently that talks about having this kind of NTSB board, like a transparency thing, because I think we are seeing the value of transparency in the headlines um, in terms of moving the conversation along at the board level, the CEO level, and just general awareness that this isn't a hypothetical thing we hear about in the movies. This right. is actually something that happens every day and to all kinds of organizations. So I think it's helpful um, as long as we know how to frame it as leaders, right? That it doesn't just become, you know, a scary monster, but it actually seems like something that we can get traction on and make movement on and improvement over time. I don't know. Can we talk a little bit about this buy versus build and the security poverty line for, uh, because, the, and, and you you guys mentioned it in the book, the book actually does say, you know, we are, we are coming at it from the perspective of, of Google with a lot of resources and so on. It's not, a, it's these principles and these things that you're describing is not a plug and play for any place. And I bring this up because for a lot of CISOs, they say, listen, dude, I can't get people to stop clicking on links. Like, spear phishing is my biggest nightmare. I'm, I'm, I'm in a ransomware epidemic here because someone clicked on a link. But it's 2021, like people need to click on links to get work done. Clicking on link is a desired user action, right? So, and people are saying it's a, it's a struggle for the CISOs without a lot of resources and without security teams. I mean, and even hospitals, big organizations, right? Without security teams, it's tough for them to understand. Let me go back and bake things into the basics when I'm freaking just putting out fires everywhere, right? Yep. Yeah. I, I think um, I'm going to take that example as maybe just be a little bit over specific, but you know, we have this this problem too. I mean, we've, you know, we have oh, yeah, I'm sure you thousands have of employees worldwide who click on links. I mean, browsing the web is what we do at Google. We sort of, um, what I would say is, you know, sometimes we over fixate, right? Um, yes, we should try to make those links as safe as possible. Uh, we have safe browsing built into Chrome. We try to anticipate when people are clicking on links that they shouldn't, but ask yourself what happens after that, right? Is malware getting installed on the machine? Why? Why can that happen? Um, if if the attacker gets control of the machine, can they laterally move to other machines in the network? Why are you allowing that happen? Um, if if that particular employee has access to sensitive data, you know, can the attacker immediately get it on their machine, or have you put more roadblocks that would actually stop them? Right. Can you contain them long enough once somebody's clicked on the link for you to get to it? And then how quickly can you rebuild that system? Um, you know, maybe. You know, I've seen what I what I see happen is we have, especially in this remote world, a machine get compromised, and it takes weeks to replace it because you know you don't have the ability to reinstall it remotely, or there's lots of sensitive data there. 
you know, in, in reality, you know, at Google, we try to be able to rebuild any machine in, in a couple of hours, right? So that even if somebody's clicked on a link and bypassed all the malware, the attacker's trapped there and we can just reinstall that system immediately. Um, this is also very helpful with ransomware because you just get rid of the <laughs> get rid of the encrypted right, right. machine and sort of, you know, move on with life, right? Chrome OS, for example, is designed with all this in mind, right? right? right. Like if you get compromised, well, just reset it and move on, right? So yes, people are going to click on links, but you should also be thinking about it, sort of the whole life, you know, the whole um, the whole kill chain there, so to speak, and making sure you're disrupting all of that as well, and then you don't have to worry as much about those clicky links. Right, but that all that that kill chain and setting that up also assumes that you have resources to put all those technologies and processes in place. And how much of it is people versus technology? How much of it is just process things like you describe? If this happens and this happens, then this happens. Those are like those are like foundational process things that I what I find is a lot of a lot of newer CISOs and a lot of smaller, less resourced organizations really really struggle with that piece of it. Yeah, well, I think some of it is which solutions you choose and how you choose to use them. Um, you know, let's just take a, a you know, a traditional uh, Microsoft implementation, you know, you know, Active Directory, you set up a bunch of laptops. You know, the, the default for a very, very long time was to just have everything trust everything in the environment. But if you were, a, you know, a trained, savvy, you know, Windows SRE, you would set that up differently such that those two or three or, you know, 1,000 laptops don't trust each other. Can you can you pause there for 10 seconds and describe SRE? Because I, that, I want to segue into the next conversation sure. of the morphing of the security role and the morphing of the developer role, and they're all kind of starting to become yeah. one. I mean, in, in theory, your drive is to make them one. If, if you yeah. can shift everything left, yeah. that's the gold spot where your resources yeah. so, are missing. SRE, Site Reliability Engineers, is a concept that we developed um, over a decade this idea that um, our systems were were so advanced that we not only needed systems administrators, but we needed developers who understood, you know, the stack more deeply. Um, so they're not just, you know, installing the software that the developers build and sort of watching it run and keeping it up. They're they're actively involved every day in, in the. And they're not coming into your organization with that skill and ability yet, right? Um, in many cases, we're just hiring developers, right? right? People who would normally take a software engineering job, we're, we're hiring them in as, you know, SREs. And and yes, their primary job responsibility is to, to keep search working for all of you. Um, but at the same time, they're, you know, fixing bugs in code, finding ways to optimize deployments, you know, they're doing a development job. And so we think of this not just as the traditional systems administration, as we might have thought about it 20 years ago, but, you know, the actual... Um, other piece of the development life cycle, which is not just writing the code, but making sure it's maintainable and, and reliable as well. And then you have your processes in places to make sure that when code gets checked in, it, it, they go through like uh, security checks and like all of that automated at scale is where, where you're driving forward, right? Yeah, I think you have to automate it, especially in a big software engineering shop. But I think even if you are a, you know, a, like a 10, 20 person company making a uh, uh, you know, maybe a single featured uh, software suite. Um, it's really valuable because you don't have a lot of staff, right? And so if we can build into these, you know, cloud native pipelines, auto fuzzing, uh, static analysis, you're running a vulnerable library, maybe you want to upgrade. These kinds of checks can really assist the developer in doing a better job by default. And it moves the needle in terms of managing your security program 
uh, even resources for your security program so that bugs get caught much, much early in the process. Bugs never get into production. Now you're not spending on bug bounty programs for external eyeballs to find it. You're not spending on, you know, pen tests and so on. So the more and more, like, again, I, I really encourage people to kind of read the book and wrap your head around pushing all those things left and morphing all those roles. Does this, does this, do you anticipate in 10, 15 years from now, the, the, the security-centric role, the security specialist disappears? Or there's always going to be a need for that checkpoint? There will always be a need for humans here uh, and specialists who understand. And it depends a little bit on the topic. Uh, we will always have cryptographers. Nobody should be rolling their own crypto. We should leave that to the experts. I also think uh, pen testing, to some extent, building these technologies, That's we, we emphasize that a lot in the book, that specialists are great for inventing the kinds of things you want to happen. So, you know, auto fuzzing, for example, is very, uh, fuzzing is a kind of special, unique thing. But Figuring out new attack surfaces. New attack yeah, surfaces, yeah. Um, people doing research on like uh, CPU side channel um, bugs, that sort of thing. So you're always going to have a need for specialists, but I think what we want to do is get the specialists out of the business of doing things that can be automated um, and things that should be done by default, right? So they should be building templating systems, not auditing line by line code that might create cross-site cross scripting right. bugs, right? It's good security even affordable? Because I feel like I feel like no one is no one buys perfect security that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you're you're hoping to get good. Does that even exist in terms of purchasing technologies, buying into all these snake oil products that have filled the DRSA's show floor? Yeah. Or are we always just managing exposure to risk in a way where we're just trying to make it manageable? I think where we are and where we want to be are two very different places. I think where we are today is that, you know, the reality is a lot of companies are forced to go to the market and buy solutions that they're told do a thing, but don't actually do a thing. Whereas I, where I think we're going is that more and more of those those needs are built into the platforms by default, and you know probably with some continued optionality, right? Some choices of of, of you know what kinds of solutions you plug in, but it it shouldn't be something you have to think about. Uh, the the analogy I like to use, others use it as well, is when you buy a car, you don't pick which seatbelt you're going to get. The seatbelt just comes in the car. It's fairly standard. It works the same in every car, pretty much. Same it's a great point, but but I don't have to buy that seatbelt, right? There's also this thing where vendors vendors are selling security on top. Security is a business. Uh, security is this business enabler where I, I sell you a product and then I sell you the tools to secure that product. Like where does the responsibility lie in terms of providing security for that product. And, and the seatbelt example is perfect. And it goes back to the security taxes. Yeah. Even VP, even, sorry, even um, multi-factor authentication we described, there's a website called SSO.tax that actually documents places where it's become a friction point. Yeah. Um, I'm not paying for that seatbelt. Why, why, why have we standardized and normalized paying for things that we, sh that we should be getting from our providers? I think it comes back to this idea that we've not converged on the right solutions for everything yet. But if you think about it, uh, a lot of the banks are doing 2FA now. Google's doing 2FA by default. Um, and we give, you know, that's part of the product. You're not paying extra to get it. Because I think, you know, to some extent, we, we've largely converged on the solution. And so we understand there's no R&D cost anymore. 
But I think when we look at things like uh, the EDR market or, um, you know, endpoint. Are you bullish on that? Are you bullish on that as a long-term, long-game thing to for security programs to invest in EDR and this kind of log all the things, push everything into dashboards? Well, I I think it depends on what configuration it takes. I've got strong opinions. That's probably a whole podcast in and of itself. I know. I, I, um, I, listen, yeah. every one of these questions I ask you, I feel like we could <laughs> podcast forever on because I want to dig into it with yeah. you, but we don't have time. But yeah, I think um, EDR is an interesting example because there's so much experimentation still going on. You, you actually do have quite a bit of instrumentation by default from the vendors. Right. Um, you're already getting those signals and telemetry. Yeah. Apple has XProtect. Um, Microsoft has uh, Defender. I think the um, what, what's gonna, what you're seeing in the EDR market is there's the, the, those solutions are still not sufficient for some reason, right? And so you're seeing lots of experimentation in the field. Over time, some of that will converge and end up in the platforms by default. Google's taking a different approach with Chrome OS, which is remove a bunch of the attack surface and make a lot of that irrelevant, <laughs> right? So I, right, I actually right. like that approach because, you know, you're getting for, you know, you're, you're not going to have tons and tons of um, kind of malware problems on the Chrome OS device because we've just sort of eliminated the class of problem. But as long as you're still handing users a supercomputer that can do, you know, anything from databases to running video games, you're, you're going to have this gap that people are trying to fill of, you know, how do we catch stuff after the fact or in... in but the future is supercomputers, though. It's not... Do you think the future is the Chrome OS model or the supercomputer model where everyone wants every, their the devices to do everything? The most popular devices are mobile phones, and those are not supercomputers, right? They have smaller tax surfaces and are purpose-built. Okay. And I think, you know, if we think about the 7 billion people on the planet, I think most people are going to have those devices, not supercomputers. So... Um, and, you know, you think about special purpose stuff, you know, the, the, the device that runs the, uh, the, the IV pump in the hospital does not need a supercomputer operating system, right? It is, you know, you know, it's a special device. It does one thing. Why do we need to have it be able to run cryptocurrency mining, for example? Right? What are you most proud of, uh, during your time there at Google coming in from the early days to where you are now? Like a, a seen very much as a leader in driving a lot of change in the industry from Project Zero and their policies all the way down, all the work Tag is doing now around the nation state stuff. Yeah. When you look back, like is there is there a specific thing you're most proud of? Is it technology? Is it driving this culture? What is the? I think it's that we've been able to give back, and all the things we talk about, whether it's you know two factor authentication, zero trust beyond corp beyond prod. Um, safe browsing. We, we, we've built it for ourselves, but we've also built it to give back. And in many cases, um, you can use these solutions every day without uh, needing to pay for it. You know, our safe templating systems for uh, HTML, all of that is open source. And I think our ability to innovate and, and give it back for free, I think is, um, you know, I, I see it as contributing to a healthy culture within the community. And I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of how we've, um, kind of shown up in that way. Is there a thing that you wish you had gotten done by now? Is there like that to-do project that continues to gnaw at you that we haven't been able to complete? Not you personally, not Google specifically, but computing maybe, or, or, or there's, is there something that you wished? Why haven't we sought that yet? Open source security. The security of our open source supply chain, I think is... Um, yeah, the code cough thing just oh, on the, yes. and the blast radius for something as simple as that, right? It's, yeah. Um, I, I think... It's really incredible how these 
technology, you know, the, the democracy, uh, the democratization of coding is, is incredible because it means that anyone um, can create open source projects, contribute to the community. It comes with a downside. Um, you know, there's you know, a really great example from a little while ago, uh, a project called DNS Mask. It is built into almost everything. You know, it's sort of invisible and underneath and you don't really see it. It's running in satellites and stuff in space. Right. And, um, uh, you know, if it has a bug, we have to patch the whole world. How does that work? work? <laughs> right? right. And it goes back to the old Dan Kaminsky DNS bug where it's like uh, across the board. Yeah, um, but yeah. So I think we, we need to, as an industry, as a community, get a handle on, you know, when... Is that even fixable though? I mean, can you linger there for a second and, and paint a picture of what something like protecting or securing the open source software supply chain would, would even yeah. look like? I I think as a community, we are really good about adopting practices that make sense and building a culture for ourselves of things that make sense. Um, if it's the right thing to do that we secure our development you know, machines in a certain way, you know, developers are going to take that responsibility. It's part of this idea of contributing back. I think the question here is, is what, what standards do we want to converge on? Um, so there's a, there's a few, a few very passionate people in this space. Um, I'll just mention one that Google's participating in. It's the OSSF. Um, and the idea there is that we have a framework. Here's what- It's the group that's just pushed the six store and pushing a lot of the, the uh, content and driving a lot of, uh, what is it called? Salsa framework, this- Yeah, there's a number. Right? Yeah, there's a number of them in there, but OSSF is, is the one I'm most familiar with. Mm -hmm. But the idea there is that we give every open source project a framework of things. Here's what you need to do. And- you know, if you're an open SSL or an Apache, you know, regardless of which license you're using, if you want to participate in a healthy ecosystem, here's what we need to do as a community. And this is a starting point. We're going to be talking about this for a very, very long time. But I think that if we build that, then every new developer who comes in, whether they're, you know, 15 or 50 and are doing it for the first time, when you set up your open source project, here's what you get by default. Here's the framework you need to work in by default. I think we can. But again, it's going to be a journey. We It'll take some, you know, you mentioned Dan Kaminsky. He was really passionate about DNSSEC, right? That's a that's a whole journey um, that, you know, people are still working through. Right, right. Um, these transformations take time, right? IPv6 is another example of, you know, the community converging on a new protocol and adopting it and starting to use it, um, you know. Do you get a feel, do you, do you get a sense that we're at this inflection point, perhaps caused by solar winds and caused by all the mainstream media activity and .gov activity at a very high level around supply chain issues. You mentioned the executive order. You mentioned a lot of the stuff coming out of NIST and CISA around really driving supply chain issues forward. Do you feel like, like, and again, we go back to 2009 on Aurora and how that mm -hmm. drove change to beyond corp and zero trust. Do you feel like we are at that inflection point where so software supply chain is finally like getting the kind of spotlight it deserves to drive this change that you you'd like to see well, or is this just people pandering for budget like as usual well when when you've been doing it for 20 years you see lots of inflection points and if there are all those inflection points maybe there are no inflection points <laughs> exactly but everything is urgent nothing is right yeah but i i do see them as catalysts and i think all of them we should take every opportunity we get to raise the visibility on the issues and um, keep the conversation moving forward. So I, I actually don't mind when these come out and then all the vendors get excited and the governments get excited because it's, it's, the, it's them opening the door 
right? We should walk through it. We should we should lead with our messaging and and lead with our ideas and and help them get where we're going, right? But it's you know these are long journeys. You know, this is not a one to two year project. You know, this is ten to twenty years of investment in human societies, right. and you know we got to be willing to make those those long walks. What I want to close here on the last question, where do you see security innovation actually happening? We talked about what you'd like to see and where, what, what, what excites you about where you see folks focused on today? Um, any, and, and feel free to plug whatever you want to plug, because this is, a, I really like to use this section of the podcast to understand from folks like you, like, cause I hear a lot of product pitches and snake oil and yeah, yeah. You know, marketing people in my ear all day. From your standpoint, what are you, what are you seeing that you really like? And that's really well, I mean, philosophically, I like any solution that that turns the problem upside down and completely eliminates classes of vulnerabilities. So, you know, I, I like platforms like Grim OS. I like the isolation technologies Sound happening boxing, on mobile phones. That stuff, yeah. One thing I will say is that we don't talk enough about data and the role that data plays, not only in security, like, you know, where do I need to patch my machines, but also in the decision-making process. And can you explain that? Because I feel like I just had this conversation with someone about extending zero trust all the way down to data. Why are we stopping at identities and why are we stopping at like mm -hmm. verifying identities and devices? Why don't we go a little deeper there? Yeah. When you, when you mentioned data security, what yeah. you describe it? So I was thinking about data more in the, in the sense of data analytics and, and, you know, using data analytics, machine learning and stuff to make, to assist in making decisions. But let me, let me pivot for a moment because I think that when we talk about data security, there are lots of solutions thrown out. You know, if, how do I trust my cloud provider with my data? Well, maybe I'll just encrypt all my data inside. Um, but there are other things we can be doing as well. Um, for example. But computing against that encrypted data is where the little data. Yeah, um, there's some some work being done there. Some people don't care. Some people just want to use the cloud provider as like a data repository. Right, right. If you want to compute on the data, that's more difficult. Uh, homomorphic encryption. There's right. some people playing there's around. There's some challenges there, but there are people yeah. trying to solve that with software, and that's confined, kind of like another area. Confined use cases, yeah. Right, right. But I think more importantly, there are things that we can be doing as you know data you know data custodians, so to speak. Like why you know if if you have your Gmail with Google. Um, you know, you should know anytime a human at Google goes and looks at it, right? So we actually offer this um, through uh, our cloud programs um, for for provider. You know, if you sign up for Google, you can kind of see uh, access transparency is what we call it. Right. Um, but also, I think zero trust, you know, as from an SRE perspective, if I'm going to go access data, maybe I need a peer review for that. Maybe I need to do a multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, maybe I need to write down exactly why I'm going to do that, and maybe somebody's going to review that, right? And and this has benefits for reliability and security because it it prevents people from making mistakes because that second party is like, hey, did you realize you had a typo? But also, um, it means that if an attacker takes your account, it's much more. You know, the barriers are much higher for them to get over in order to steal the data using your access privileges. So I think we can extend zero trust all the way down to the data layer as well. Um, but I think we should also be using the metadata around all of those activities to make better decisions, just like as security right, programs, right? right? And, and that, do AI and machine learning at a real level where it's just not a buzzword, but it's actual. You know. Yeah. And it's assistant, right? I, um, I, I see, you know, we're going to use machine learning for detecting malware. 
But actually where I see machine learning working best in that environment is looking for patterns of anomalies that help the analyst figure out what's going on, right? Rather than trying to be true detective. And drive a larger discussion about what your process would look like down the road, right? That's, I think, the kind of upper use of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, are we ever going to vote? And I know uh, 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 electoral security is also a top of mind issue for yeah. you. Are we ever going to vote electronically? Ever as a human species? Probably. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> um, I think right now there's a combination of technology challenges. And, you know, if you follow someone like Matt Blaze, lots yeah. and lots of opinions there. I encourage people to go check Matt Blaze's keynote from our, uh, from Black Hat last year. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Um, so we have a, a series of technical challenges that I think eventually we will overcome. I think there's also a, a series of cultural challenges, access to technology. Um, you know, how do we build trust that the elections process works well? That's a, that's as much a technology problem as right, it is right. a cultural one. Like, just how do we all feel? Uh, about it. So right now, the fact that we can get a paper ballot and someone, a human, can look at a paper ballot and 10 humans can look at a paper ballot and, and, and validate there's verifiability and inspectability yeah. there at the human yeah. layer, right? There, there's, there's still a cultural trust in, for some reason in that piece of paper, which is ironic because we, we've made so many um, advancements. We will eventually overcome those and the technology challenges, but I don't, I don't necessarily see that we, we have solutions for both in front of us today. Right. And I think you make a larger, a bigger point about accessibility as well, which we found out with the pandemic where you know, large swaths of the country or large swaths of people just don't have access to do online schooling, for instance. You know, yeah. people were on cell phones trying to figure out a, a, a class. So accessibility goes hand in hand with, you know, getting the technology right or getting trust and verifiability in the technology right. Yeah. And I actually see the being able to sign up for a vaccine as a better proxy for voting that, you know, people are having difficulty navigating just, you know, pharmacy websites and things like that. Imagine voting where we have to sort of uh, val- validate who you are as a user. And that ties into, um, do we want voting ID? And there's lots of other, right. you know, society. And there are all kinds of political questions. As well. Yeah, that we have to solve at the same time. So we'll get there eventually. But I think, you know, rightly so, you know, Matt Blaze. We're having these conversations for the next 10 years. Uh, 20 maybe, yeah. 20 maybe. God. Let's leave it there. Can you come back on the podcast another time, please? Absolutely, so we can anytime. And do- double click down on a few of those things. Heather, thank you very much. This has been a thrill for me. I'm very a big well. fan of your work. Thank you. Thanks again for uh, not only writing the book, but for, for Google Cloud for giving it to us to, for free. Yeah. Um, and what's next? Is there a, is there a fourth edition? Well, uh, this this one this one was quite a labor. Are you just uh, tired now? We're, we're going to let this one sit for a little while, but um, <laughs> but um, we do publish our SRE group publishes from time to time. They have a a, a recent book out on uh, cloud transformation, so keep keep an eye on that space. Fantastic, thank you, Heather. Appreciate it. Cheers.